today's Bible reading today's Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 9 verses 9 to 17 as Jesus passed on from there he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax tax booth and he said to him follow me and he rose and followed him and as Jesus reclined at table in the house behold many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Thank you, Susie. Please keep your Bibles open there at Matthew chapter 9, um, so you can track along uh, and follow and see where it's all coming from. My name is Lee, if you're new here. I'm the pastor of the church, and let me just add my welcome, particularly if you're visiting with us or if it's your first time, um, it's so good that you're here with us. You've uh, jumping in with us into the middle of a series that we're in, in Matthew chapter 8 to 13, where we're considering really the authority of Jesus, kingdom authority. And we've been thinking about who he is uh, and the call that he places upon our lives. Definitions matter. Meaning matters. Wrong definitions or misunderstandings about words or phrases or ideas can drastically alter our behavior, the outcomes, or the consequences. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8 to 9, as we've tracked through with Jesus, we've seen his authority displayed and demonstrated. Uh, but in amongst that, he's been issuing these calls to discipleship, uh, these calls to, to follow him. And he's been clarifying for those around him and for us what that actually means, what that actually looks like. We thought about a number of weeks ago that the call to discipleship is costly. It costs us nothing to come to Jesus, but it will cost us everything if we choose to follow him. And in our passage today, um, that Susie's read for us, He's continuing to further challenge and clarify the assumptions or the expectations that we might have about what it means to follow him. So I wonder, as you sit here this morning, what your working definition of a disciple is. What you would say to someone if they said to you, hey, see when Jesus says, follow me, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? Who does that apply to? My encouragement to you this morning is to let Jesus' own words challenge or assess what your definition of discipleship is. 
perhaps as a Christian or even as someone who isn't a Christian, you have certain assumptions or expectations about the kind of person that follows Jesus and how we are to follow Jesus. Well, in these verses, Jesus challenges us to see that follow me ultimately means that we come to him as sinners to live a new life of joyful obedience. We come to him as sinners to live a new life of joyful obedience. And I'm just going to switch mics. The first thing then we see this morning together is follow me means a call for sinners to be spiritually healed by Jesus. That's what we see in this first encounter with Matthew in verses 9 to 13. Verse 9, if you look down, Jesus calls Matthew, and we see here that Matthew is a tax collector, which means he's the worst, okay? Doesn't get any worse than tax collectors. They were considered by the Jews to be traitors because they worked under the Romans, essentially. They were considered, because they mixed with the Romans who were Gentiles, they were considered unclean, they were contaminated. They were so bad, in fact, that as we'll see, they had their own category of badness. It was sinners and tax collectors. They were the worst. So Jesus shocks everyone here by calling Matthew. You can imagine, he's sitting there collecting taxes, likely in a corrupt way, and this is the person that Jesus walks up to and says, follow me. How does Matthew respond? Well, he responds rightly. He rose and followed him. Here is a faithful response to Jesus' call, to rise up and to follow. He did that immediately. As we say this, there's in many ways scandalous and shocking to those looking on. He was considered a traitor. If any of you have been watching the show on BBC, Traitors, it's kind of a, a reality version of the party game Mafia, if you've ever played that. There's faithfuls and there's traitors. The traitors seek to kill the faithfuls and the faithfuls try to find out who the traitors are. Imagine the faithfuls uncover the identity of a traitor, but instead of killing them or getting rid of them, they welcome them into the faithfuls. They treat them as one of their own. They have no hard feelings. Jesus here in his invitation to Matthew shows us that the invitation to come to him extends to everyone, even those considered the worst of sinners. He embodies that invitation then in what he does next. He, in verse 10, goes to Matthew's house and eats with him. Verse 10 says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Imagine if someone from HMRC knocks on your door, uh, what your response would be or your inclination. Imagine you were, even though you owed a lot of tax, you were to say to them, hey, come inside of got dinner on the go. Come and eat with us. What Jesus does here is bucking the trend. He goes into Matthew's house. Matthew makes a great feast for him, as all our gospel accounts confirm for us. And at this feast, it's not just Matthew and Jesus, it's many tax collectors and sinners. This is a motley crew. Notice Jesus' reaction. He walks into this feast. He doesn't recoil at them. He reclines with them. He doesn't nervously think, I hope no one pulls their phone out and takes a photo of this and puts it up on social media and then all my disciples or all my 
that all the Jews will see me sitting with all these tax collectors and sinners. No, he sits among them, he reclines with them, and he eats with them. If you read the Gospels or you know the Gospels, you'll know that meals are not insignificant when it comes to Jesus. In fact, Jesus describes himself in Luke 7 as the son of man who came eating and drinking. We find him often in the Gospels sitting with sinners and tithe collectors around the meal. What's the significance of that? Well, sharing a meal with someone expresses, doesn't it, welcome and love. We have a meal with someone or we invite them to have a meal with us. We're expressing welcome. We're expressing love. We're expressing fellowship. So too with Jesus, in a very real and tangible way, he expresses God's welcome and grace to these people, to sinners, to people who are ultimately his enemies. This meal that Jesus has with them ultimately reminds us, of course, of the the central meals that Christians gather around, the Lord's Supper, which we'll remember together in, in a moment. It's a meal where forgiven sinners fellowship with Jesus a meal through which the bread and wine embodies the grace and the forgiveness of sins that are ours in Christ. Newsflash, Pharisees don't like this. They see Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors, and they don't like it at all. If you look down at verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, you can see them going up to one of his disciples at the end of the table, hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing? Why is he doing this? Jesus, how can you extend welcome and fellowship over a meal with these sinners, these traitors, and these enemies? Jesus, of course, overhears. And in response, he reveals why he chooses to recline with them, why he sits and has a meal with sinners. Verse 12 tells us, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick, as I prepare this this week, I'm kind of wondering how much are the people overhearing this conversation between the Pharisees and Jesus? Jesus says, the, the well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What Jesus is saying here is twofold. Firstly, it's compassionate. He's telling us that sinful people, which includes all of us, are sick. But as a loving doctor, Jesus has come to heal us. He doesn't leave us in our sin sickness. He comes to earth as a great physician to heal us, to forgive us, to cure us of that sin sickness through taking that sickness, that sin upon himself on the cross in order to make forgiveness for sins possible. The forgiveness of sins, which we saw last week at just above chapter 9, the forgiveness of sins, which he has total authority to do. He's not just a well-meaning doctor. He's an authoritative doctor who can forgive sins. It's compassionate, but what he says also cuts. You imagine the people with him at the table hearing that? Hey, I'm a sinner. I'm sick. He's telling us as well that we are sick with sin, that we are not healthy, that we need his help and healing. In order to be healed, we need to admit that we are sick. If you and I are sick and in need of a doctor, there's a stage that comes before seeing the doctor. That's the stage of admitting, I need a doctor. I am sick. We need ourselves to admit that, or maybe we need persuaded by a loved one that we are sick enough to to go and get the doctor. 
Some of us maybe are better at that than others. Maybe some of us are prideful about admitting that we're weak and that we're not healthy and that we're sick and that we need a doctor. We need to recognize, this passage gets us to recognize that we are, not, we are just like them. We are not healthy. We're not to be like the Pharisees who thought they were healthy. They didn't think they were sick. They didn't think they were sinful. They didn't class themselves amongst the tax collectors and the sinners, the people that Jesus was eating with. They thought they were righteous. When Jesus uses that word righteous here in verse 13, it really means self-righteous. The reality is, though, that they were sick, the same as everyone else around that table. They looked healthy, or at least they thought they did, but they weren't. They were obeying the laws, they thought so, but they were doing so without love. They were hypocritical. Their righteousness was hollow. It was all show. They were obeying the law in a legalistic, self-righteous manner. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 13. He says, you guys need to go away and learn this. Learn this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting there Hosea 6 where it says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's comparing the Pharisees to the Israelites there in Hosea 6, who were observing all the religious rituals, who were ticking all the right boxes, who, who were doing all of these things, but they were doing it in a hollow manner. They did so with like humility for their sin. They did it based on the dependence of what they did. And they did it ultimately without love for God or others. That was evidenced in the fact that they, they were seeking mercy from God, but they weren't willing to show it to anyone else. They thought they were better than everyone else. If they truly loved and obeyed God, they would humbly see that they weren't healthy but sick. They weren't righteous but sinners. Those who are nothing without the mercy and grace of God, that's what they would have got. Therefore, they would have moved towards the tax collectors and sinners because they recognized they were just the same as them. Yet that's not what they did. And Jesus says that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The reality for us is that none of us are righteous. All of us are sinners. All of us fall short of God's glory. All of us, by nature, break God's law and reject him. Jesus came for people just like us. He came to call us to himself. He came to call us to repentance for our sin and faith in him and to receive the forgiveness of sins so that we too might one day sit around that table and fellowship with him. <coughs> he does that by taking our sin and he gives us his righteousness and therefore we stand accepted and forgiven by God. So if... How do, how do these verses then apply to us? Well, if you hear that call to follow Jesus, if you hear him say, follow me, which he says to us this morning in these verses, it's a call that was issued to Matthew, a sinner. How are we to respond? We're not to respond with sacrifice, for Jesus himself has made that once for all sacrifice. Instead, we are to humbly turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, to know and love him, and like Matthew, to rise up and follow him. Look how he used Matthew. The gospel you have in your hands was written by him. Rise up, follow him, and see what he would do with your life. It's a call, it's an invitation for those who are sick with sin. 
It's a call by a gracious, great physician, Jesus, to come and be healed of that sin sickness. And it requires that humility. It requires a recognition that we aren't healthy. And do you know how we recognize we're not healthy? By stopping comparing ourselves to everyone around us, but instead comparing ourselves to a holy God. The Pharisees were comparing themselves to the tax collectors and sinners and thinking, we're better than them. God says, no. Compare yourself to my holy law, to my holy standards. Then you will see that you're not righteous. But don't stay there. Go to my son, who's willing to forgive you and to cleanse you and to heal you. He will fellowship with you, and not just you. Look at the table. When Jesus calls Matthew, he doesn't call him on his own. Jesus calls us, he doesn't call us on our own. We come into fellowship with many other forgiven sinners. The church, a family where we all walk together with humility and in fellowship with the Lord and one another. And it's an invitation made by Jesus who does not recoil at our sin, but draws near to us and reclines with us. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? The Son of God, perfectly obedient, unlike any other who's ever walked this earth, chose to grab a chair and pull it up beside those considered the worst of the worst. Hear this this morning. Jesus does not recoil at your past or your present sin, even though others might. He does not recoil at your past or present sin. In love, he pulls up a chair beside you in order to express his welcome and love to you and invite you to turn from your sin and come and eat with him for all eternity. A few of us in church are reading through the book of Joshua at the minute, and one of the amazing things in the book of Joshua is that God includes a non-Jew, a Gentile person into his people. First of all, it's a Gentile. Second of all, it's a woman. Third of all, she's a prostitute. It symbolizes or teaches us that these are the kind of people Jesus came for, and these are the kind of people that can come into his family, come into his kingdom when they turn from their sin and turn in trust towards him. There is no sin Jesus can't forgive and no person Jesus won't fellowship with where there is humble repentance and faith. These verses also contain a challenge for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Who do we choose to sit with? Who do we recline with? Here Jesus shows us what it looks like to move towards and and sit with those who don't know him. He shows us that we shouldn't shy away from sitting around the table with friends and family members and neighbors who don't walk with Jesus, no matter what way they live. In fact, the, the example of Jesus compels us to. See what it, a powerful way it is to demonstrate the welcome and grace of Jesus, to sit and eat with those not like us. Let me encourage you to invite those people, to visit them, to have a meal with them, to grab them for coffee, whatever it might be. Of course, that doesn't mean we shy away from hard conversations that might come up where we get an opportunity to graciously express our faith. It may mean awkward conversations about what we believe or what it looks like to follow Jesus. If family or friends divide over such things, as Jesus tells us we should expect, as we'll think about in a few weeks, let it not be because of how we treated them or the tone with which we spoke to them, 
but for the truth which we graciously presented them with. And in being willing to sit with them and move towards them and having conversations with them, we we get to have those conversations in the context of grace and of welcome and of love as expressed here in a meal or however that might be. We get to have those conversations side by side rather than sitting at a distance in judgment. Of course, we still heed the Bible's wisdom with the kind of crowds we spend time with. What's in view here, make no mistake, is sitting around a table eating food. It's not trying to have gospel conversations in a strip club. Nor is Jesus sweeping sin under the carpet here or celebrating it. His reclining with them is also purposeful in that he's seeking to call sinners to himself. That should be our goal and our desire as well in this endeavor. Yes, Jesus sits with them. Yes, he pulls a seat up beside them. Yes, he is graciously embodying his welcome and love to them, but he doesn't sweep sin under the carpet. And don't forget, one of the first things Jesus comes out with in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4 is the call to repent. So he's not putting any of that aside here, but he's doing it in the context of sitting beside them or spending time with them and expressing his love towards them. The writer and author Kevin DeYoung says this about Jesus. Yes, Jesus was a friend of sinners, not because he winked at sin, ignored sin, or enjoyed lighthearted revelry with those engaged in immorality. Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners and was very pleased to welcome sinners who were open to the gospel, sorry for their sins, and on their way to putting their faith in him. So let me just encourage you this morning, if you're a Christian here, not to allow fear or awkwardness or judgmentalism to get in the way of such encounters, such opportunities. Pray for them. Pursue them wisely. Approach them intentionally. It's easy, isn't it, as Christians to kind of create a safe cocoon around our lives, one where we never venture into those kind of difficult or more awkward situations where we might have to talk about our faith or share our faith with those who are very different from us. But we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't shy away from those things. There's a warning here for us as well. A warning that we not become like the Pharisees, that we not hollow love out of the law. That we don't go about our Christian routines and rituals, which are good, but we don't do so without real love for God, which leads to genuine love and compassion and mercy for those around us. If that's true of us, if you find yourself hollowing, remind yourself of the love with which he just moved towards you, the compassion he showed you, the mercy he's shown you, and subsequently let that then fuel your mercy and compassion for those around you. Let me encourage you to consider what six sinners Jesus has put in your path. And in the days ahead, prayerfully think through how you can introduce them to the greatest doctor, Jesus. So we've been introduced to Jesus as a doctor, a doctor who compassionately comes to heal sick people, sick sinners. Now we just see Jesus describe himself as a bridegroom to challenge more assumptions we might have about what it means to follow him. Follow me means a call for sinners to be spiritually healed by Jesus. And secondly, follow me means a new life of joyful obedience according to Jesus. Verse 14, if you look down, then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
This passage ultimately isn't about fasting, but just in case you don't know what that is, let me briefly explain. Biblically understood, it's a uh, fasting partners uh, an intensification of prayer. So pa- fasting and prayer to go together. It's the decision to set aside a period of time to focus on bringing a particular issue before the Lord. It's removing every distraction, including the, the necessities of and pleasures of eating and drinking in order to seek God's face with a particular issue. The prompt to fast may be repentance for sin. It may be mourning over a situation or over sin or over grief. And maybe seeking direction or intervention. The Bible doesn't prescribe fasting in the same way we maybe would see prayer. The Bible tells us to be constant in prayer. It doesn't tell us to be constant in fasting. Something that's there and we should consider doing. Under Old Testament law, fasting was only required one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But what's going on here is that John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were likely making faster a more regular thing in their lives, almost a criteria or or a standard for being a really good Christian, for being a truly righteous person. If you look at your footnote, uh, you might have a footnote in your Bible where it says, "Um, why do do, uh, we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples not fast much? You see that in, in chapter 14. Why do we and the Pharisees fast much? So they're fasting all the time. They're making it a kind of standard of, yeah, we're really great Christians. Add to this how Jesus talked about fasting back in Matthew 6, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, where he kind of chastised them for going about fasting with gloomy faces. It was all doom and gloom. They wanted everyone to know, hey, we're fasting. We're mourning. Look how holy we are. Again, here we have people seeking to obey Jesus in a self-righteous, legalistic, hollow way. Hey, everyone, look how holy I am. Look how much we fast. Why are you not fasting as much as I fast? Then in verse 15, in answer, Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Given that mourning was one of the most significant reasons to fast, Jesus is saying, My disciples have no reason to mourn because the bridegroom is here. Who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus. He's referring to himself and his disciples are the wedding guests. Jesus is saying here, it's a time for feasting, not fasting. Why would my disciples walk around mourning when and all gloomy faced when they're at a wedding? The bridegroom's here. They're my wedding guests. If you know your Bible at all, you'll know that Jesus is picking up here on a really uh, important thread that runs through the Bible, a metaphor where God describes himself in relation to his people as a husband or a bridegroom. Jesus picks that metaphor up and applies it to himself. I'm the bridegroom. I've come for my people, for my bride, the church. In saying that, he's declaring himself as God. Isaiah 62 says this, for as young men For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And John's disciples would have been familiar with this metaphor. John 3, we see John the Baptist himself talk about being Jesus' best man. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, John says. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Again, joy, rejoicing that Jesus has come, there's not a time for mourning, it's a time for rejoicing. 
Jesus is saying here that the, the, the messianic bridegroom, the one promised in the Old Testament, has arrived. The wedding party is in some way started. With him has come this new age, this new kingdom where all who trust in him are betrothed or engaged to him using biblical language and now, now joyfully anticipate that end time marriage feast that will happen when Jesus returns. The marriage feast that's really anticipated in this meal with the tax collectors and sinners, the marriage feast that we anticipate as we gather every time around the Lord's table. Jesus has come. His kingdom has arrived. The wedding party has begun. It's a time of rejoicing, not mourning. <coughs> then you think, well, why does Jesus say that he'll be taken away and they will fast? Well, Jesus does say that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. There he's referring to his death and then going back to be with the Father where he is now. <coughs> then his disciples will fast. So now we are in a time where fasting is still appropriate. We live in an age where the kingdom of Christ is already, but not quite yet. It's not come in all its fullness. Fasting is still appropriate because there's still cause to mourn. Sin, grief. But even now, we don't mourn totally without joy or hope. Because we know the bridegroom's coming back again. Matthew 25 tells us that. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. So the arrival of Jesus here as the bridegroom signals a new age, a new era, a new kingdom, one which changes everything, one which changes how we walk in obedience to God. That's what Jesus is getting at in these verses 16 and 17. When a couple gets married... They don't try and squeeze one another's lives into their existing routines and patterns and ways of doing things, okay? Rule number one, the first day you're married, you don't say to your spouse, hey, could you just get on board with all the things I already do, with all the things that I are already involved in, with all my routines and rituals? Hey, if, if you could just be kind enough to kind of just tag along with all the things I do, that's not what you do. When you get married, everything changes. In a sense, you start this new life together. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. The emphasis here is on something new and something old. Something's changed here. What's new? Well, it's the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. It's the new covenant. What's old? It's the rituals and traditions of Judaism. Jesus is saying, my gospel, my kingdom cannot be contained anymore or at all in the rituals and traditions of Judaism. They weren't to patch Jesus on to their old way of life, to the way things have always been done. Nor were they tried to squeeze him in like wine into old wineskins. They needed totally new wineskins. They and we need to follow Jesus according to his law in his new kingdom. These verses show us that Jesus didn't come to patch up our lives. Jesus doesn't come and do a patch-up job on your life. He totally changes it. He makes you totally new. Everything changes. 
You come to Jesus, you don't squeeze him into your life. You don't make Jesus accommodate to you. You accommodate to him. It's not that Jesus here is throwing out the Old Testament. After all, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's just now that we obey him in light of his teaching, his commands, his newness of life, his interpretation of the law. That's what we're called to do. So if we follow Jesus, we don't do that according to our own traditions or our own rituals or our own assumptions or our own expectations. We lay all of them aside and we obey Jesus according to Jesus, according to the new way he set out for us. We don't do what the Pharisees and John do. We don't take a good thing like fasting, which it was a good thing, right? And we're still called to fast. We don't take a good thing and turn it into a burdensome, joyless ritual. Loved ones, let's not do that. Let's be careful both, of, both as individuals and a church not to take something good and elevate it to a status that it's not meant to have, to make it into a burdensome, joyless ritual. The illustration in verses 16 to 17 tell us or warn us that if we do that, it's spiritually damaging. A worse tear is made. The wineskins are destroyed. We must be careful not to take the good news of Jesus and the joyful life of obedience that he calls us to and try and squeeze it into our preferred forms and patterns and rituals and expectations that in the end mean we might even lose the gospel itself. Because look what happens when you put new wine into old wineskins. The wine is spilled. Perhaps you've experienced that growing up. Or you've been part of a church where Jesus and the gospel has been squeezed into the correct forms or patterns of worship and discipleship rather than submitting them to Jesus. The result being that the gospel is not preserved. God has laid down in his word clear commands and essentials for how we're to live the Christian life and how we're to disciple and how the gathered worship of life of the church is to look. Yes, but everything else we must hold with humility, never making them a test for salvation or a stumbling block to the gospel going forth. If you're someone considering following Jesus, these verses show us that we don't make Jesus conform to our way of life, our expectations, our assumptions. We conform to our, his way of life totally. These verses also show us that contrary to what you might think, being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is not some dry, dull way of life burdened by rituals and traditions. Yes, being a Christian means we change our behavior. Yes, being a Christian means we obey commands. It means being religious, okay? Religion's not a dirty word. James uses it in James 1.27. It means those things. But Jesus says it all flows from and must focus on a joyful relationship with Jesus as our bridegroom. Is that how you think of Jesus? Is that how you think of your walk with him? Do you have joy? A new life of joyful obedience according to Jesus should in many ways feel like the excitement of getting ready for a wedding day. Should be fueled by joy in our bridegroom 
who through the cross has eternally declared his love and grace towards us. We now get to live from a place of forgiveness and of grace and of love. We get to live out of those things with gratitude. Don't need to be gloomy. We don't need to work our fingers down to the bone in order to earn his righteousness and his favor. In Jesus, our bridegroom, has been given to us freely. Get to live from those things, from grace and gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us. And though at times our lives now on this side of eternity will still be mingled with mourning, we press on with hope and joy, looking forward to that end-time marriage feast when we will no longer need to fast. And it's that end-time marriage feast that we anticipate now as we gather around the Lord's table. So let me just pray for us, and then we're going to just spend some time gathering around the Lord's table together. Father, I pray um, that you would help us uh, and change us with respect to how we think of ourselves in light of Jesus and how we think of others. Father, I thank you for Jesus' gracious invitation, his gracious move towards sinners. Help us, Father, not to be self-righteous. Help us not to be hypocrites. Help us to recognize that without Jesus we aren't healthy and that we need his healing help. Father, help us to obey these things faithfully. And Father, would you just fill our hearts with joy right now? Fill our hearts with joy in that Jesus is our bridegroom if we're trusting in him, that he's forgiven us, that he fellowships with us, and that he guarantees we will spend eternity eating and drinking with him. In his name we pray. Amen.